Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, a podcast dedicated to speaking to authors about their most recently published work. My name is Matthew Long, and I will be your host here at the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network for this most recent installment. The second formation of Islamic law is a new contribution to the study of Islam, more specifically to the history of Islamic law and its development. Guy Barak, Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies librarian at New York University, explores the Ottomans' adoption of one branch of the Hanafi legal tradition as the official school or madhab of the dynasty. The period of time in which this process occurred was during the 15th and 18th centuries, and Barak focuses on the lands of greater Syria. What Barak seeks to illustrate is that through the adoption of an official school of law, the Ottoman hierarchy played a significant role in how the school of law was shaped. Examples Barak provides to demonstrate this phenomenon are the institutionalization of the position of mufti, the formalization of genealogical literature or tabakat, and the canonization process of books essential to the school. In addition to examining the propagators of official Ottoman positions, Barak also examines how scholars not part of the Ottoman mainstream school functioned and responded to these many changes. Overall, this work represents an important contribution to the study of Islam, the history of Islamic law, and Ottoman studies. Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. This is your host, Matthew Long, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Guy Burke, Barak, excuse me, Guy, about his book, The Second Formation of Islamic Law. How are you doing today, Guy? I'm good, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, no, the pleasure is ours. Um, we're doing, I'm doing very well, and we're looking forward to speaking with you um, about your book. Uh, however, before we get started, uh, would you uh, be so kind to... Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your academic history. I'm currently the Middle Eastern Islamic Studies librarian at um, NYU's um, Elmer Holmes Bob's Library. Um, before, before coming to NYU or before I became a librarian, uh, I did my PhD at NYU. So, and one of the reasons why I became a librarian at NYU is because I wanted to stay in New York and, and at NYU. Um, I did my PhD in Ottoman history, or that's what I thought I was doing. Um, but as I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to discuss later, um, it became very different. And now I'm somewhere, I mean, I feel comfortable in Ottoman studies, but I'm turning in, I think I'm becoming more and more an Islamic studies person. Uh, and maybe I could say more about this transition later. Um, 
and before that, um, I did my undergraduate studies at Tel Aviv University, where I was trained as um, as an Ottomanist, but I also had strong interest in Islamic uh, medieval history. And I think that my interest in medieval history is strongly reflected in my work. Okay. Um, so let's just jump right in. Um, so what... What drew you to, you know, th- this topic um, and how did you actually get started uh, in, you know, writing this book? So when I, when I came to NYU to work on the dissertation that eventually uh, ended up being the basis um, on which um, I wrote the book, I wanted to write about um, those jurists who were not members of the Hanafi school of law, that is the official school of law uh, that the Ottomans ended up adopting. And for a while, this, this, is, this was what I wanted to do. But as I started looking at the materials, I realized that I really don't know anything about um, the Hanafis or the followers of the school that at the time I thought was well studied. Um, and that led me to this project that that was about those um, jurists that were affiliated with the state and what it meant to be affiliated with the Ottoman state um, in the 16th and 17th century, I started primarily, um, I was interested in the history of those jurists in the Arab provinces uh, of the empire, especially in Syria. But then as the project uh, evolved, uh, it became a much more, an imperial project in scope, in the sense that um, Istanbul and the central lands of the empire are much more present in the in the project than what I had um, originally expected. And I guess at this point, um, what I'd like to do is just kind of turn it over to you to kind of just start leading us through, you know, what it is that, you know, a little bit more about what you were looking at and then kind of, you know, how the sort of things that you were looking at to explore, you know, your thesis. Yeah, so I'll just start, before I get to the content of the book, I'll say that um, the reason why the book is framed the way it is, is because I got an invitation from a friend of mine, Jonathan Brown, um, from Georgetown, um, to write an entry uh, for an encyclopedia that he's editing um, on the history of the Islamic school of law. And at the time, I didn't think of what I was doing as um, a history of of a school of law or of a history of or a history of schools of law in general. And because of this entry, I, I suddenly realized that this is the framework for the book. So the book um, is, as I said, um, an attempt to explain what it meant or what it means for a state to officially adopt the school of law. I, for our listeners or for your listeners who are not familiar with uh, Islamic legal history or not uh, as familiar uh, with Islamic legal history, I'll say that my basic argument is that when we look at the Ottoman period and more generally um, at the post-Mongol period, we see a very different kind of relationship between the state or the dynasty and the jurist, and we see a very different uh, form of 
form or forms of patronage. And I think that this is the reason, uh, uh, this is basically the reason why I call the book The Second Formation. Um, and part of this second formation is the adoption of an official school of law in the sense, and by adoption, what I think this adoption meant um, was a serious intervention on behalf of the ruling dynasty in shaping the doctrine and the structure of the school. And in this sense, it's very different from other forms of patronage that were basically reflected in employment, salaries, and affiliation with the court. Here we see a very different project institutionally and doctrinally. And then kind of as, as you start to begin uh, showing examples of this intervention, as you said, um, I think that's kind of what's going on in the chapters throughout your book is that at least uh, in my opinion, the first three chapters of the book are definitely examples of those interventions occurring, correct? Yeah. So the first chapter, the first chapter of the book um, looks at this issue of um, appointing, appointing muftis. Um, it is appointing jurists that issued legal opinions and before the Ottomans, uh, by and large, uh, muftis were not, um, or the, the institution of the mufti was not a position. Everyone, everyone who was granted a permission to issue, um, to issue fatwas or and to teach law was considered a mufti. Under the Ottoman, we see a very uh, interesting institutional transformation, where the mufti and the mufti becomes. Um, an official position, and therefore muftis could be um, fired or removed from office. And this is something that is very, very rare um, in pre-Ottoman times. I argue, and here I rely on um, jurists from the 17th and the 18th century who opposed um, this institutional transformation, um, that the appointment of mufti is more than just um, it, it's more than just um, an attempt to to, regu- to regulate or perhaps um, systematize um, a legal system, but it, there there is a doctrinal dimension to it too, and the the doctrinal dimension is the attempt to regulate the content and and the structure of the school itself, including its doctrines. And so then you also kind of, during that chapter, you specifically highlight um, a few examples of that as well with um, one, uh, at least one particular individual. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the more interesting, um, one of the more interesting jurist in this debate um, about this institutional transformation is um, a jurist from Damascus who was not appointed by the, by the state or, or to be more precise was appointed for a very brief um, he was appointed briefly but then uh, most of his career he was a, an independent or um, non-appointed uh, jurist and he, he openly says um, that what the Ottomans are doing is an attempt to basically regulate the doctrines of the school. And that was, if I can, if I have to point um, at a single um, 
most important source uh, in this book. This treatise was a very illuminating um, and a very illuminating text for me because it really helped me understand what was at stake. Um, and it was interesting to see that observers at the time understood that that was what, that this this was uh, that this is what was at stake. And just for our listeners, the treatise you were you're referring to is is um, it basically it's part of a debate about the the practice of appointing muftis, um, and the the jurist who wrote it is Abdelrani al Lapulsi, and a very prolific and very important jurist uh, and mystic, and perhaps one of the better studied figures um, in 17th century Ottoman, definitely a Syrian intellectual history. Um, and this is one of the treatises, um, one of, I don't know if how well known this treatise is, um, but it exists in several copies. Um, and that was... And, and he wrote about basically everything, um, starting from from agriculture to mysticism to Islamic law. And this is one of the most interesting um, treatises I read for this project. Okay. So Muftis and their appointment becomes one of the interventions, uh, as, as you had kind of said earlier. Um, is there anything else from this uh, from this section that we should be taking away that the listeners should know about? Yeah, I mean, I think that the muftis in general are part of a much broader development that is the rise of um, religious and legal establishments. And um, one could say, or I, w- I definitely would, that the rise of um, religious and legal establishments is one of the mo- most important and interesting legacies um, of the Ottoman period in the Ottoman and and the post Ottoman Middle East, um, and if you want to if you want to look at uh, from a broader perspective, so it's one of the more interesting legacies of the post Mongol period more generally. Uh, and the muftis um, the muftis are just one understudied and I think very important element in this in this development of the hierarchy uh, and. In a sense, the the mufti or the the institutional transformation that the institution of the mufti undergoes in this period um, captures the broader transformation that um, that the um, let's say that the uh, evolution or development of um, of religious establishment is all about, and it is more than a social or an institutional practice, it is a doctrinal, um, it's, it's, a, it's a doctrinal project. And something not, not seen prior to this period, really? Um, not really. Okay. And I should add for our listeners that when you do, you know, get a chance to read this work, that you provide a very, I, th- I thought, a very helpful introduction to, you know, to the muftis, um, and it's actually that's what the segment is called—a very brief introduction. But I thought it was very, uh, very helpful, even for someone you know versed in the field. That it does provide a little bit of more insight into the position and what it is, what it's becoming, or what it becomes during you know this transitionary period. Right. Um. Uh. Then in the uh, subsequent two, the subsequent two chapters that you follow up after this section, 
um, are about another intervention, one intervention, but taken from two different perspectives. Um, and would, would you go ahead and start, you know, leading us through yeah. this portion of the work? The, the second part is, or the next two chapters um, are basically related to the rise of uh, religious um, and legal establishment. And one of the things I was interested in is I was interested in how um, or how these jurists who were affiliated with the legal establishment or learned hierarchy under, understood their own history and their own past within the uh, tradition of the Hanafi school and more generally within uh, Islamic history. Um, and one of the ways of doing it was um, by writing those very interesting genealogies that lead basically from the prophet through the founder or the eponymous founder of the school, uh, Abu Hanifa, to um, the um, learned hierarchy, the Ottoman learned hierarchy. And one of the things I'm, uh, I'm trying to show is that these genealogies had very concrete um, had very concrete implications and they were intended to serve very practical um, purposes, one of which is to distinguish jurists that were affiliated with the learned hierarchy from other jurists um, who, were, who were followers of the Hanafi school but were not followers of this particular branch. Um, and it was also, uh, and, and these genealogies were also used as reference works to establish um, what what the um, major doctrinal works and what were the most important arguments that followers of the um, or that members of the learned hierarchy, the Ottoman learned hierarchy, should follow. Um, but we also see, and that's basically what I look at in my third chapter, that there were responses to this attempt by jurists from the Arab provinces, and that the responses were quite diverse. One of them is basically an attempt to produce an alternative Hanfi genealogy that by and large excludes, excludes the um, Ottoman learned hierarchy and, it, and, and its uh, branch within the Hanafi school. And the other, the other project, which was commissioned by the Ottoman sultan, but it was written by a jurist from the Arab land, is an attempt to come up with a more comprehensive um, a, a more comprehensive work that will um, reconcile or bring together both branches um, or multiple branches within the Hanafi school. And he, the, the author identifies or he, he knows or he understands the work as an attempt to produce a comprehensive, a comprehensive survey of all the branches. Um, but these developments are obviously related and they are in dialogue with each other. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, this genre uh, does have, does have a name, uh, rather important name as well. What's the name of this genre? The, um, the genre is known as tabakat, um, mm -hmm. which means generations or layers. And it has a very long history um, in Islamic historiography or Islamic uh, history writing. For some reason, um, the Tabakat works from the uh, Ottoman period um, 
have not been well studied and or have not been systematically studied, whereas um, other um, where uh, tobacco from earlier periods received much more attention. I just mentioned um, Kevin Jake's uh, extremely influential, uh, or at least I thought was it was very um, important to me in my understanding of the genre and how to approach it. Um, so I just mentioned Kevin Jake's work that was um, really important in for this project. Uh, but there are really uh, numerous studies um, of this genre. I'll just say that the genre is not only about, uh, or is not, covers all kinds of religious sciences. So you, are, you can have the generation of Sufis, the generations of, of jurists, the generations of Hadith transmitters. It's basically a way of documenting the transmission of knowledge, of religious knowledge, um, from basically from the prophet to the author's time. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, you know, you, you spent a lot of time uh, really talking about the, the two works from the third section and their purposes. Um, and, and you did the same also with the second chapter, but was, I mean, were there other reasons that the, uh, I believe that you chose at least three different works or four, excuse me, four different works. Was, um, did you have specific motivations for those four particular works? Well, that's basically the four works I found. Um, mm-hmm. But I was interested in the fact that um, the, the Ottoman Tabakat project was an ongoing project. And if the earliest is from the, from the second half of the 16th century, uh, the latest or uh, the, latest, the latest I um, I was able to find was from the early 18th century, and I was I was interested in this connect in in understanding why people thought they had to um, expand this project and and why they um, they they weren't happy or they thought that they that they had to reassert their claims um, over a very long period of time, and I think that in that. Each of these works um, is, on the one hand, there are clear continuities, but there are also some very interesting differences in the way they are organized, in uh, in the way they address um, more recent or current events. Um, I think that the latest, for example, I link the latest to an interesting uh, crisis that takes place um, in the first decade, in the first decade of the 18th century, where the, it's a well-known crisis in Ottoman history, where uh, where the um, mufti is uh, removed from office and eventually executed, and it is um, a very traumatic moment. And I thought, that, and I think that the last that the last work um, is related to this crisis, and it is an attempt. Um, to show that despite everything, we are still part of the same, we are, we are still part of a learned hierarchy and we are still affiliated with the, learned, with the, with the ruling dynasty. And so there is an interesting interplay or there, the issue of crisis is a major issue in those, in, in these two chapters. Okay. All right. Um, before we move on, is there anything else that we should, the listeners should know about from these two sections? Um, maybe I should say that, like, 
that the issue of, of crisis um, is something that um, I learned or I got thinking about this issue of crisis in the production of this genre again from Kevin Jake's um, work. And so for our listeners who are not familiar with Kevin's work, um, Kevin Jakes look at the 15th century or an early 15th century uh, Tabakat work from the Mamluk period, um, and he links the, the production of this work to, to an ongoing sense of crisis or authoritative crisis in the 14th and the 15th century. And, and this, um, so I try to understand what is this sense or what kind of crisis the jurists in the period I was um, studying and what kind of crisis they were experiencing. And it seemed to me that the conquest and this encounter between different traditions created a sense of uh, anxiety or authoritative crisis. And this crisis led them to produce those, uh, those works. And in this sense, the works are, um, gives us the opportunity to have um, a better sense of the, um, of this sense, this very uh, interesting uh, sense of anxiety that we usually don't get from other sources. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, so if we can, would you like to go ahead and move forward to the next section? Yeah. Um, so the fourth chapter sort of builds on the first two. Um, and it is closely related to this issue of genealogies and the genealogies as an attempt to canonize certain arguments and, and, and certain doctrines within the Hanafi school. And the fourth chapter looks at um, canonization practices and particularly the formation of what I call an imperial jurisprudential canon um, over the course of the and uh, 15, 16, and 17th century. And I look at how books and uh, legal texts became part of the canon. And by becoming part of the canon, um, it meant that a book was uh, circulated um, throughout the empire um, among members of the um, Ottoman learned hierarchy and it was used in their um, in the rulings and in the writings. Um, so I was interested in this formation of um, perhaps this collective identity through canon or through through, through the formation of the canon. And this is uh, basically what I look at. On, uh, I look at in the fourth chapter. But here again, I look at different canonization practices and how different jurists including juries that were not affiliated with the learned hierarchy, how they understood um, canonization of texts and how they developed their own sense of canon. The main difference between these two um, very broad groups uh, of jurists is that the that members of the Ottoman learned hierarchy um, were willing to accept the, um, the intervention of the state and the ruling sultan, uh, the ruling sultan in the canonization of text. Uh, early in the 16th century, it is the sultan itself, the sultan himself, that canonizes text. That is, he issues edicts um, where he specifies what text can or should be read. 
and later are members of the learned hierarchy, but members of the learned hierarchy drew their authority to a large extent at least um, from their appointment and drew their, their authority um, from the appointment by the Sultan. So in a sense, they are an extension of the, um, of the Sultan in this, uh, in this canonization project. Jurists from the Arab lands, that is, jurists that were not affiliated with the learned hierarchy, um, still um, followed um, older practices, and they believed that a book get canonized based on consensus or um, the agreement of leading authorities or leading jurists um, who come gradually to agree uh, on the importance of a certain on, on the importance of a certain work. Um, at one point you mentioned, uh, how the Sultan could become involved in the canonization process was involved in the canonization process of what can or should be used. So a quick follow-up question during these, these times, were there, did the levels of restrictiveness or application of that become more harsh or more liberal? I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, were there at moments where the canonization was you should, but you can still use other works versus you must use these? Yeah. Were there any periods of fluctuation so like that? It's actually a, a very interesting, um, it's a great question. And it touches on the comparison between what we see in the Ottoman Empire and what we see in Europe at the time. So we don't have, um, we don't have censorship in the Ottoman Empire in the sense that we don't have um, an institution that censors books. And one of the interesting things is that the Ottomans never banned um, other books. Um, and we see, if we look at the empire's textual landscape, we see books that were part of the um, imperial canon and circulating sometimes in the same library and by the same people um, circulating with books that were never, that were not officially canonized. Um, and this, this makes the, the Ottoman story very, very interesting. And, but it also shows the power of the learned hierarchy as a canonizing, um, as a canonizing environment or as a canonizing institution. And it's, it was based on some sense of uh, establishment uh, consciousness that the canon emerged. But at the same time, there were many texts, um, and many of these texts made it to Istanbul, and many of these texts are today um, in various libraries in Istanbul that were never part of the canon, but still circulated. And then a, a one additional follow-up to that, because so much of your work is focused on the the Hanafi school, and when you had just said that there was still accessibility to a great number of works that were not part of the canon, did that also apply to books not even within the, the school itself that, uh, you know, f- for our listeners, you know, maybe Maliki scholars, Maliki jurists, uh, and more probably more prominently, Shafi'i jurists would would their works been equally accessible? Yeah, they were. I mean, especially mm-hmm. throughout the Arab the Arab provinces, 
where there was a strong presence of uh, Shafi'is and Maliki's and to a much lesser extent Hanbali's. So, and these juries kept writing and many of them remained as influential, remained quite influential. And so we have this part that I barely touch on in this book. Um, but I can, I can mention a recent, very interesting work that actually looks at these jurists. It's Ahmed Fikri uh, Ibrahim's Pragmatism in Islamic Law. He looks, um, he focuses on, on those, um, on the non-Hanafi jurists. And, 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 he really sh- and he shows that um, many of these authorities were still around. Um, and, they, and they also had a very interesting um, relationship with the learned hierarchy. And um, so there is much more than what I cover in this book. Okay. Wonderful. Um, any, any further comments no, before we move forward? Pretty much it. Okay. And then transitioning to the final chapter before you make your concluding remarks, um, you talk about plurality a little bit. Can you go ahead and start leading us through that portion? Yeah. For a while, I was very hesitant about um, the fourth chapter. I didn't know if I should if I should write it. I mean, it seemed that it wasn't very necessary. I mean, it's a chapter that parts of it are in the dissertation, but it didn't seem very important. I thought that um, it, it should be part of a separate project. But then I realized that um, I or at least I felt that I had to say something about how non-jurists or broader circles in uh, Ottoman society experience this diversity and between different jurists and different legal authorities and different legal traditions. And so the fifth chapter basically looks at how different, um, how different people, some um, some were members of the uh, Ottoman ruling elite, some were commoners, and made use of these uh, multiple authorities for different practices. Um, and that obviously, uh, or as you mentioned, it raises the nature of uh, the nature of the legal administration of the empire. And what do you, how do you explain, or how should we understand the existence of, the existence of multiple um, multiple authorities um, and how and what and how do we understand the nature of the learned hierarchy within this very complex landscape can, uh, can you go ahead and continue um, so one of the re- so for this reason and here muftis are very useful because muftis um, because muftis issued their legal opinions and the, and the legal opinions were connected um, or collected in, in, in collections of legal rulings. So what I did, I basically looked at how different people um, made use of the different muftis and how they... Um, so I, I looked at cases where different groups bring the same case to different muftis and then I, I, I sort of trace how these different rul- uh, rulings were used in, in the Ottoman uh, legal system. 
Um, it's very clear that the state appointed state appointed muftis or the officially appointed muftis um, were considered more authoritative at, um, in the um, in the legal in the Ottoman legal system. That doesn't mean that um, rulings by um, non-appointed muftis uh, didn't did were never brought to court, but at least the way. Um, the legal procedure is documented, and that's the sources I had. Um, it's very clear that the um, that the uh, legal the Ottoman legal system um, supported the officially appointed muftis. And but it's also very interesting to see how people brought uh, rulings and and court resolutions issued by the imperial legal system to other muftis who were not appointed. So it goes in multiple directions. And what I just wanted, what I basically want to do in the book, uh, or in this chapter, is to show that um, this is not just a doctrinal, almost academic debate between jurists, but it's something that really touched on the lives of um, many individuals um, across the empire. Okay. Um, any any further remarks to add to that, then? Um, no, I think that's it. Okay. And then just tying everything together, you, you offer um, some concluding notes uh, to, you know, to kind of tie everything together. Um, could you go ahead and lead us through what that is? Yeah, so the conclusion is basically an attempt um, to take the, the book or the body of the book that is essentially a very um, Ottoman um, or Ottomanist book and to situate it in a broader context, in the context of the post-Mongol um, Islamic East. And the I think that the conclusion sort of reflects um, the way my understanding of the project evolved. And I started as an Ottomanist and I was trained as an Ottomanist. Most of my sources are in Ottoman, Turkish and Arabic, are situated in certain libraries in Istanbul and, and elsewhere. And the historiographical debates and I participate in and, or I participated in were primarily um, Ottomanist. And, but the conclusion tries to situate the book and in a much broader context and to take the uh, Ottoman story and turn it into a case study and to show that the um, that what we see in the Ottoman case is just um, it's an interesting example of a much um, a much more interesting development that we see basically from the 14th or the 15th century from India to the Balkans. Um, and it's also an attempt to write the, um, the period I'm interested in into the grand narratives of Islamic law and basically the um, most narratives of Islamic law, of the grand narratives of Islamic legal history. Um, my impression was that they didn't reflect the complexity and the innovation of the uh, of those centuries, and um, most of them ended for various reasons. Ended in the 15th century. Then they said a little. They had a few, a short chapter on 
the Ottoman period, and then um, they sort of um, get interested again in Islamic legal history in the 19th and the 20th century. And what I wanted to do is really look at those short chapters and basically to reorganize or to offer a new periodization of Islamic legal history and to argue that many of the things that we see in the 19th century um, stem from a much earlier development. Um, some, of the, some of these developments can be traced back to the um, late 15th century. Um, and in a sense, um, I hope that the book offers new ways to think about this um, about this time period, basically from the 15th century to the present. I think it's, I think the book is wonderful. Um, I think that you have made significant contributions. It's definitely very eye-opening, um, not being familiar with the topic, but very clear, um, you know, well-written and very explanatory when it comes to all the different elements that you're bringing together here. Thanks. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time uh, to discuss this work, but before we let you go for the day, um, are, th- are there any upcoming projects that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so now I'm currently working on the second part of this book, um, which basically looks at the, the history of dynastic law uh, or kanun, um, a concept that I touch on briefly in the book. Um, and the book basically looks at the, um, the history of this concept, again, from the 14th century to the uh, 20, uh, 20th century and maybe even to the present. And basically what I try to do in the book is um, I try to explain why this concept um, deserves much more attention than what we have, including myself, uh, pay to it. And to show that why this concept was so important for understanding the development that I describe in in this book, the second book or the new book basically grows out of my um, realization that I sort of missed <laughs> the the main story in the first book. I mean, when I wrote this book, I thought that the main story was the rise of an official school of law. Now I really understand, or at least I'm, I strongly believe that this, that the um, that the main story is the story of the dynastic, the, the legal claims that dynasties, including including the Ottomans, were making in the post-Mongol period. And um, one of the manifestations of these claims is the intervention in other legal discourses, including Islamic law, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't. It's not exclusively a Muslim or an Islamic story. I mean, I think. Um, we can find similar dynamics with other legal discourses. Uh, and it doesn't have to be exclusively a Sunni story because we see similar developments in the Shia world. Um, so this is basically what uh, the new project is about. Well, that sounds wonderful. We look forward to, uh, to seeing that in the future then. Um, well, like I said, we have taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking this time to uh, share your work, share information about the book with all of our listeners and want to encourage our listeners to go out there and to pick up a copy and to explore it themselves. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And you have a good day. You too. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us as we spoke with Guy Burick 
about his book, The Second Formation of Islamic Law. Please be sure to come back to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network in a few weeks for a new podcast, as well as check out some of our previous podcasts. Also, feel free to check out one of the many other channels we have here at the New Books Network. Thank you very much for joining us.